0: If you want to open up your Bibles with me this morning, we'll be looking at 1 John uh, chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 13. We'll be focusing mainly on verse 13 this morning. And we're going to be looking at a very important doctrine this morning, one that I think is often maybe overlooked in our lives as believers. And in some cases, it's even withheld from believers or kept from the blessed saints of God. And it's the topic or the doctrine of assurance. And I think this is withheld from people or forgotten about, not in a malicious way, not because uh, people are necessarily trying to withhold this doctrine, but it just, it, it just it happens. And, so, and I think this has a great effect on our souls, on our assurance as believers, and it has many and devastating effects. And what we're going to look at this morning is the doctrine of assurance or the assurance of salvation the assurance of salvation, the belief that God's children, his beloved children, adopted into his family, born again by the Spirit of God, can know that they have eternal life, can know that they have eternal life. Not just have eternal life, but they themselves know that they have eternal life. And right away, our minds go to many And frequent abuses of this doctrine. And maybe some are popping into your head right now. Many abuses are false assurance that is given to people that are not true Christians and this assurance that they are in the faith when they are indeed not. Or we fear that false believers will be assured that they are saved when in fact they do not have saving faith. And these fears are real fears. And Christ, our Lord, brings them up in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, Many will come to me on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these signs in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all these things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so these fears are real, these fears of false assurance. But there should be an equal, if not greater fear that enters our minds that we would keep assurance from God's beloved saints, the fear that true saints of God would not experience this assurance of their salvation. And I've tried to put my finger on why that is, why we have that fear. And maybe there might be an overcorrection in our day. And I think part of it might be because of the plethora of evangelism and prosperity gospel preaching and name it and claim it, where false assurance is given out and there's just this plethora of false assurance, this epidemic that, if you could put it like that, where if you give money to our ministry, then you'll be saved, you know, or if you, um, you know, raise your hand or if you do this or that, then you will be saved and you'll know you'll have salvation. It doesn't matter how you live after that. And so there's this plethora, this epidemic of false assurance, and sadly... While we've been rightly combating this idea of false assurance, in in doing that we may have lost the doctrine of true biblical assurance. While rightly withholding false assurance, I fear that we have kept true saints from the blessed hope of assurance. And if we're honest, I think we can tend to think it's not a big deal, or we haven't lost much if we do that. It's better to err on the side of, Thinking that we're not saved than to err on the side of this assurance of salvation. It's better to always be questioning our salvation rather than to assume it. But what we are losing is far greater than we can imagine, I think. Not only does withholding assurance go against what Scripture teaches about the doctrine but it withholds the sweet balm to our weary and heavy-laden souls. And so this morning, as we look at God's Word, we're going to see that the Bible does indeed teach that believers can and should have assurance of their salvation, that the only grounds of our assurance is the finished work of Christ alone, and that we will, as believers, struggle and have our assurance shaken at many points in our Christian life but we have a sure and steadfast hope that will not put us to shame. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. Again, it's 1 John um, chapter 5, verses 10-13. through 13. I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. The Apostle John says this, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace, for lavishing your love upon us in the person and work of your Son. And as we come to your word this morning, maybe distracted in our minds, maybe heavy laden with the trials and tribulations of this past week or year, We come before you now as your people, we come to worship you and we ask and pray that by the power of your spirit this morning, you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would help us to see the importance of this doctrine of assurance, that um, we need it desperately and you would help us to see the only grounds of our assurance is Christ alone and that even though we may struggle, even though we may be shaken in many ways, that we have a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul this morning that will lead us um, not only in this life, but to the life to come. So we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three different things this morning, kind of an outline for three different points, if you want to think of it like that. First, we're going to look at the necessity of, of assurance, the necessity of assurance that this doctrine is an important thing that we need to maintain, we need to uphold, and we'll look at its necessity Secondly, we'll look at the grounds of our assurance, the grounds, the foundation, the basis of our assurance. And then finally, we'll look at the struggle of assurance, the daily battle that we as Christians face. So first, we'll look at the necessity of assurance. So in John, in first John chapter five, we see John give us the reason he wrote this whole epistle. (laughs) All these five chapters, he tells us Why he wrote it. And this is kind of why I like John. We're going through the gospel of John at Covenant. And he does the same thing in the gospel of John. He tells at the end why he wrote what he wrote. And we see here, he says he wrote so that you may know that you have eternal life. But if you go to the gospel of John, John chapter 20, verse 31, John tells us why he wrote the gospel of John. He said, I wrote these things so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing you might have life in his name. So we could say it like this Jesus wrote the Gospel of John so that we might believe in Christ, and he wrote the, this first epistle um, so that we might know we have life in Christ. Or we could say it like this The Gospel of John was written so that we might have eternal life. This first John was written so that we might know we have eternal life. And so if we can begin to see the difference between simply believing in Christ and knowing experientially that we are saved, that we have eternal life, that's sort of what we're trying to get at this morning with the doctrine of assurance. And so you might ask, why is this necessary? Why is this an important thing? And why does John write this? That's really the question we're asking is, Why did John write this letter? Why does the writer to the Hebrews earnestly plead and desire that each believer have the full assurance of faith? And I think one reason we can say is because they know our weakness, (laughs) right? The Apostle John knows our weakness, our daily struggle and difficulty, and that it is important for us to have true assurance of salvation. And I think as Christians, oftentimes... If we're honest, we struggle with this. We struggle believing that we could be saved. We could, that we could be partakers of the promise. We might believe that God is able to save, but maybe not believe that he is able to save me, you, us. And that's what we're really talking about. If you're looking for kind of a helpful definition of what is assurance is, it's this. It's a confidence that the promises of God are for you. It's a confidence that the promises of a God are for you or as Sinclair Ferguson said that we are in right relationship with God through Christ, that we have been justified, adopted by God, regenerated by the spirit of God and adopted into his family. This is what we mean by assurance that we believe we have confidence that these promises are for us. And I think the reason as believers we often struggle with this doctrine, we struggle with this idea of assurance is because we know our sin most intimately, right? It's ever before us. Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. And I think in one reason it's because we know our sin most intimately. We know the things that we stumble over. The very sin that once separated from us, from God, is the thing that's ever before us. The thing that we're daily wrestling with and struggling with. And so it can be easy for us to doubt our salvation can be easy for us to doubt that God could save me. You know, we might believe, oh, God could save someone else. But we doubt often that God is able to save someone as sinful as us, that we could actually be assured of our salvation And that on the last day, God will not count our sins against us. And so this is why John writes. (laughs) He says it's necessary. This is why John writes. This is why he wrote this gospel. And this is why the doctrine of assurance is necessary. And it's interesting, if you look at the history of the church, you go all the way back to the time of the Reformation, this doctrine of assurance was really recovered during the time of the Reformation many at that time in the medieval age and all those things, this doctrine was either denied or neglected, or in some cases it was called the greatest heresy of the Reformation. Not not justification by faith alone, not this liberty of the Christian conscience, but one Roman Catholic called it the greatest heresy of the Reformation, the doctrine of assurance. And there was this fear that if, if believers knew they were saved, that they would be prone to pride or laziness, that they, would, um, they wouldn't do their penance and they wouldn't do all these other things. And so it was, called, it, was, it was called the greatest heresy. It was pushed back against at every level. But at the Reformation, this great doctrine of assurance was, was recovered. And you can see this in the historic Protestant confessions. They show that this is biblical and necessary and very important. So we've seen that this doctrine of assurance is necessary it's important. We need to know about it. But what is the foundation of our assurance? What's the, what's the basis? What's the foundation of our assurance? That brings us to our next point this morning the grounds of our assurance. The grounds of our assurance. That what we're really asking here is why can we have assurance? Why can we have hope in the promises of God? What are we looking for? For our assurance, or we can say it like this, what is the grounds of our assurance of salvation? And the truth is, there are many wrong answers to this question. There are many wrong answers to this question. Many faulty foundations on which we can build our hope. And I think it's helpful to kind of categorize into two different categories. There's moralism. And then there's sacramentalism, or you could call it ceremonialism. Moralism is this idea that our assurance is wholly based on our morals, on our law obedience, our law keeping, our good deeds, our external obedience. That if we do enough good things, then we can be sure that we are saved. This is moralism. And on the other side, we have sacramentalism or ceremonialism where we're tempted to believe because I was baptized, because I raised my hand at this revival event, because I have good church attendance. That is how I know I will be saved. And while some of these things are good in and of themselves, in and of themselves, they are not the grounds of our assurance and to place our hope in them is to place our hope on faulty ground. But for the Christian, there is only one source, one grounds of an infallible true assurance, and that is the finished work of Christ alone. The finished work of Christ alone. That this is the Christian's only hope in life and in death. Not our works, not our deeds, not our righteousness but the work of Christ, the blood and righteousness of him alone. How can we know that God will save someone as sinful as us? It's not because of us. It's because of Christ. what what does John say in verse 12? He says, whoever has the son has life. Whoever has the son has life. Life. This is the only way that we can be made right with God. The only way we can have true, eternal, everlasting life is through the Son. The triune God has sent his Son, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have sent the Son, this two-natured Redeemer, very God, a very God, very man. And in his active and passive obedience, he has made a way for us to be made right, right with God. His perfect righteousness For us and his perfect suffering for our sins. And we sing about this in our great hymns, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. This is our hope and confidence as believers. It's not in us. It is in Christ. And so we can actually have true and lasting assurance because it's not based on us. It's not based on the the faultiness of our foundation, but it's on the foundation of Christ. It's founded on his work, not on ours. And so we have a sure and steadfast hope. And we see this throughout the New Testament. If you want to turn with me to Romans chapter five, we see Paul explain this hope and talk about this hope in Romans chapter five. Verses 1 through 3 and verse 5. He says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then down to verse 5, he says, and this hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't disappoint us. It does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That this hope that we have, this hope in Christ, it does not put us to shame. It will not put us to shame because we have this firm foundation. If you go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, we see the writer to the book of Hebrews, see he's trying to explain why this promise of God, why this hope we have this unchanging love of God is sure. And he says in verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He's, he's showing you should desire to have assurance. And then he gives them the foundation, the grounds for that assurance. In verse 17, he says, so when God desired to show more convincingly, To the heirs of the promise, the unchanging character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchanging things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. (laughs) Sound familiar? A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That these promises of God that he will save his people in Christ are sure. And they are founded not only on the immutable counsel of God, the triune God, but they are confirmed by this unchanging oath. Why did God do this? Why did he attach an oath to his counsel? Why did he do this? It's not for his sake. (laughs) It's not to, to back up God's word. He's saying... God is true. He's not going to lie. He did it for our sake. What's it say in verse 18? So that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before before us. He did it for our sake so that we might have encouragement, that we might be assured, that we might have hope, that we might rejoice in the promises of God. And so this idea of assurance, this idea of the faith in the promises of God is throughout the New Testament. Paul will even go on to say in Romans chapter eight that we did not receive the spirit of fear, but the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father, that the spirit testifies to our spirit, that we are indeed children of God and heirs with Christ. But as we know, we live in a fallen world, right? We live in a world that's marred by sin. We are in this war waging between the flesh and the spirit, and we will face many difficulties and conflicts and trials. And so that brings us to our third point this morning, the struggle of assurance, the struggle of assurance. And I think if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we don't always experience this assurance that we see in the new Testament. This is, this assurance that Paul and the writer to Hebrews is talking about. And I think if we're really honest, many of us actually struggle greatly with this idea of assurance. We might say something like this. I know Christ is able to save. I know he's able to save. I have faith, but I struggle and doubt that Christ is able to save me, that the promises are for me, that I am a partaker of, of those promises. Maybe some of us today are in a season in particular of struggling with this idea of assurance. And I think there might be many reasons for that. Maybe it's more of an external reason. Maybe in the tradition that you grew up or the background that you have, maybe this idea of assurance was rejected. Maybe it wasn't taught. There was a fear that it would produce pride in us or laziness. And so True assurance was impossible to, to get or never given at all. Maybe this reason for struggling with assurance is more internal. Maybe the struggle and these conflicts and difficulties is more internal. Maybe you're saying something like this. I know assurance of salvation is possible. I know it's possible and I know others might enjoy it, but it's not me. I am not presently enjoying This assurance of salvation. I've done too much wrong. I've failed too many times. There's no way this assurance could be for me. There's definitely not enough fruit in my life. And there's this question in our head of, will we really persevere to the end? Will God really save me? And so all these struggles and conflicts and difficulties rise up and they they make us feel spiritually dry, depressed, hopeless, And then I think in many ways we can identify with the psalmist as he cries out. My tears have been my only food. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like your tears are your only food day and night? In Psalm 88, the psalmist says, my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. Have you ever felt like that? My life My soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol, to death. And even mature believers, even those that have been in the faith for many years, many decades, can fall into temptations, can fall into sins that cause us to struggle with assurance, to have our assurance shaken, diminished. Or maybe this week or maybe recently you've experienced the dark clouds of God's frowning providence where the light of his face has seemingly been removed from your life. So there's all these different things, all these different pressures and things that go into our mind that cause us to struggle with assurance. So the truth is at the end of the day, we will all struggle with this. No one is exempt from struggling with this. We will all experience times where we don't feel very saved. But the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning, and the question is, what do we do in this dark night of the soul? What do we do in these times of trial, of depression, of dryness? And if the answer is found in and of ourselves, we're in big trouble. We're lost. Ultimately, if our assurance is based solely on our works, on our fruit, we are in big trouble. Because all of these things, our works, our fruit, our obedience, will at some point fail. They will let us down. They will cause us to crack under the pressure. And we will fall into sin and temptation into something. And our assurance will be shaken. If we're looking solely to ourselves, solely to our obedience, then there's a big problem. Our assurance becomes this house of cards that's built on the sandy foundation of our works. But as we've seen. If our assurance is built on the foundation of Christ. On his work alone. The rock of our salvation. His perfect righteousness. Then we can actually have true and lasting assurance. That is because he will not fail. <laughs> right? We will fail. <laughs> we will fall into many trials and tribulations. But Christ never failed. And so true biblical assurance far from producing pride and laziness in us actually produces the opposite. It produces humility and humbleness and holiness of life. Why? Because when we're looking to Christ alone for our salvation, when we're looking to him alone, it doesn't produce pride in us. It doesn't make us say, look how great my works are. It causes us to be looking to Christ in humble reliance on His grace. It's all because of Him. It removes boasting completely. We cannot boast in our works. We can only boast in what Christ is doing in us. And true biblical assurance, far from producing laziness in us or presumption, causes joyful obedience to rise up in the hearts of God's people as fruit of the Spirit's work in us inward evidences of God's grace. And this is what the book of 1 John is full of. <laughs> One author, I think, had 14 different of these, um, these statements, these fruit of God's work in our hearts as evidence of God working in us. Just to point out a couple, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 says this, By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Or another way to say it like this is delighting in God and endeavoring to keep his commands is a mark of true saving faith. First, John, chapter three, verse 14 says this. We know that we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we love the brethren. In other words, love for fellow believers is a sign of being God's child. And so there's a real sense, and what John is laboring to show us, is there's a real sense in which these good works that are coming from the Christian, these inward graces of the Spirit, can be a source of assurance. They can be a strengthening of our assurance, but they themselves are not the grounds of our assurance. They are only the fruit and evidence of God's work in us. So it's the difference between the root which is Christ alone and the fruit as evidence of Christ's work in us. That's how we can know we are in Christ, that we have true saving faith. So hopefully we can see that this doctrine of assurance is in no way diminishing what the Bible teaches about self-examination, but it actually in every way strengthens what the Bible teaches about that Second, Peter says that we need to test ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. Um, I I liked what Joel Beakey said. He said this assurance that does not lead to a more holy walk is false assurance. (laughs) Assurance that does not lead to a more holy walk is indeed false assurance. Or we could say it like this, just as we cannot walk in sin so that grace may abound, we cannot live in unrighteousness and have our assurance strengthened that would be to go against what the bible teaches and so there is a real need for us to examine ourselves to daily repent and to humble ourselves and walk in what god has commanded but the reason the apostle john wrote 1 john was not was so we um sorry was not so we would be left in a perpetual state of this kind of morbid introspection where we're always just looking internally, always looking for ourselves and our fruit, but he wrote it so we might know that we have eternal life. That's what he says in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That for those who believe in the name of the Son of God and love Him sincerely, endeavoring to walk after Him in obedience, in good conscience before Him, can have assurance of their salvation. They can say, God has saved me. <laughs> they can know they have eternal life. And that God, that the work that God began in them, that He will bring it to completion on the last day. And so as we begin to sort of apply this doctrine in this passage, I think that this application is very much right on the surface for us to take. We don't have to do much digging to see what what we can learn from this doctrine. And I think the application is this, that chances are for many of us, many of us this morning, we're either in one of two camps, we're either in one of two places. I think many of us might be in a season of strong assurance, a season where we are walking with the Lord, where our assurance is strong, where we are joyfully resting in the promises of God. where experiencing the light of God's face. And to that, I would say, praise God, right? Thanks be to God for his grace, for his providence in in giving you assurance and giving us assurance. And the call this morning. Would be to continue in that and to continue looking to Christ, to not take our eyes off of Christ, but to maintain focused on his person and work this morning, and to to fight against the complacency that can creep in to our lives when things are going well. I took my daughter um, on a bike path recently; she was learning to ride her bike, and she was doing great, and she was finally getting the hang of it, and she was going down the path straight. And she turned around to tell me how good she was doing. And she careened off the road into, <laughs> into this patch of poison ivy almost. And, and I was thinking to myself, that's a lot what we're like oftentimes. Right when things are going well, we like to look back and, and say, aren't I doing good? Aren't, look at all the great things that I've done. We get proud, we get complacent, and we need to fight against that. We need to fight against that. Um, We need to remain steadfast. We need to keep our eyes on Christ, on his work in us, give praise and glory to him for the assurance that he's working in us. And we also can't be surprised if we're in that strong place of assurance this morning. We can't be surprised with if suddenly that assurance is removed or taken away or shaken. And that brings us to the second point that maybe for some of us we're in that second camp this morning. We're in a season of great doubt. We're in a season of great doubt where we don't have assurance of our faith, where we're not really believing that God could save someone like us. Maybe it's because of a sin that we've recently fallen into. Maybe it's because we have a weak conscience and we just find it difficult to believe that God could save someone like us. Or maybe we're in that season, that dark season of god's frowning providence where it seems as if the light of his face is hidden from us we're not necessarily doing anything wrong we're not living in sin but we just feel dry we just feel like the light of his face has been removed and so the call this morning is the same call as for the first group it is to look to christ it is to continue looking to him We don't have to look around for some extraordinary revelation, some extraordinary means by which we might receive this assurance of salvation. We have the means of God's word and his spirit that we can look to God's word and know that for those that are trusting in Christ, that have put their faith in him, they can be assured that on the last day their sin will not be counted against them, that God is able to save sinners. That's why he came. And ultimately, we can be kept from despair, from utter despair, because God's Spirit is at work in us, strengthening our assurance, giving us hope in the promises of God, His Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God, that we have true hope this morning. As we walk away and I was reminded of a hymn. I think it's actually in your hymnal. I looked at there this morning. Hymn 88. It's the hymn. God moves in a mysterious way. The hymn says this. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-ending skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Listen to this last verse. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face that even though the clouds of darkness might seem to be ever present, we have a hope that God is smiling down on us. Those clouds will not last forever, but we have a sure and steadfast hope this morning. We will struggle. We will fail and the question that we need to ask this morning is not, do I love Christ perfectly? <laughs> How do I, do I have enough good works? Do I have enough good things that are going to get me into heaven? The question this morning is, do I love Christ? Is he a good enough savior? <laughs> Am I looking to him alone? Is his righteousness enough? And the answer to those questions is yes. He is a good savior. He will save his people and he will bring about the new creation. We have a firm foundation this morning. We have a true salvation, a true assurance that we can hold on to. That's our hope is Christ alone. Let's pray this morning as we close. Lord, we thank you this morning for, um, for your grace, for what Christ has done for sinners like us, that even though none of us deserve your grace, none of us deserve um, your favor, you have lavished it upon us in the person and work of Christ. And so we pray this morning for um, us, if we are in a season of of strong assurance, we pray that you would help us to run the, the race well of endurance, that we would run the race with our eyes focused on Christ. And if that's not us, if we are in a season of darkness, of doubting our assurance, we pray that by your word and spirit, you would strengthen us, that you would um, strengthen our assurance as we look to the ordinary means that you've given us your word. And we pray that you would use those means to strengthen us and lead us to the final day where we will say, God alone, the Lord, is our righteousness. Not us, not by our works, but by yours, O Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.